is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 214 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Crystal Craker, and we're talking all about writing with clarity and using sensory details. But first to last week's question, which was, what one book do you want to read before the year is out? Um, Matt said, well, I've just finished Fourth Wing, and to be honest, I'm not sure if anything else is going to top that now. However, the latest novel by my favourite author and writing inspiration, Matthew Riley, has just arrived, so I'll be devouring Mr. Einstein's secretary. Amy Sun said, Iron and Flame, or Iron Flame, once it's out, and the the fragile, the fragile threads of power by V.E. Schwab. K.S. Barton said, I want to finish the Jade Wars series. I just finished book one and loved it. I love all of those suggestions. I also want to read Iron Flame, uh, which is the Rebecca Yaros, the sequel to Fourth Wing. (laughs) My brain brain lost the name of the book then. Uh, This week's question is, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned from a creative failure or mistake? This week's book recommendation is The Tropaholic's Guide to Internal Romance Tropes by Cindy Dees. I own a copy of this book. I have skimmed it and read some bits of it. It's more like a reference book like The Emotion Thesauruses, or Thesauri, I should say. Really like it. Um, lots and lots of good things to pick up. Love the fact that you it references particular scenes that you need in each book for particular tropes. So yeah, I recommend you go and check that out. So in personal news and updates then, just to reiterate, anyone that is flying into Vegas for the 20 Books Conference, if you are around at 6pm on the Sunday the 5th of November, we will be meeting at the Vice Versa cafe cafe bar i think it's a bar vice versa bar uh, you can message me or dm me and i will give you the address being a little rebel gathering before the conference kicks off anyone who's coming in after that point i'll still be around until saturday so just come and say hi Today, then, is the 26th of October as I record this, and it's launch day! Yay! (laughs) So the first trilogy of uh, Ruby Row is done. I can't believe it. I can't believe that I only published the first book in February. I can't believe that it's October and the trilogy is already done. That feels pretty wicked, not gonna lie. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, I always suffer a little bit of blues on a launch day. I think it's like, you know, when you run the London Marathon, or, or any marathon for that matter, and then you get to the finish line if you don't have like the next thing booked in or whatever you always have this massive crashing low I'd love to know if anybody else suffers a little bit of launch blues um obviously you get the launch joy and hysteria as well but it's like this weird roller coaster so I have now started the next book which is great right we always need to book the next race in so I have started and I'm really loving it I had a little bit of a rocky beginning I think I forget how hard I find the beginning chapter well, not just the beginning chapter, but the first couple of chapters, especially because I always change the beginning chapter once I hit about 70% of the way through the book. Um, but yeah, I had a slow couple of days and then the third day I was writing, it then really started to flow. And so, yeah, I'm enjoying that. I have been working on my Vegas talk. I have been working on my Vegas sessions 
and I have started to pack. Oh my goodness me. And I think that's about it really. I don't have a huge uh, other amount of news other than if you haven't got your copy of A Game of Deceit and Desire, then please do, do go and check it out. It is now in KU. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got some other exciting stuff in the works for those of you who do read my fiction. Um, and for those of you that read my nonfiction, I have other stuff that is on the slow burn, but it is in progress and I am working on it. So that is all I'm going to update today. The Rebel of the Week this week is Matthew Goodall. Matthew says, This is a rebel story from my father's much younger days, when health and safety was not something that was given quite as much consideration as we do now, especially for people who don't listen. He was working for what used to be the Ministry of Works, well out of town, where all the workers lived on site. The general store was manned by an apparently very nosy fellow. This gentleman had a well-deserved reputation, opening everybody's mail when it arrived, oh my God, regardless of who it was addressed to. No matter how often the workers complained, he still opened everything, read everything, and generally snooped through everything. Isn't that like illegal? Uh, anyway, my dad and his workmates got royally fed up and hatched a plan to teach him a lesson. Being the industrious fellows that they were, and having welders, engineers, construction men, and the like at their disposal, they designed and built the spherical spreader. <laughs> That's easy for me to say. This was a hollow metal ball, probably about half the size of a soccer ball. The top was inset with a circular dial that progressed in five notches. The fun part was inside. The team had found the most powerful spring they could fit and welded it inside the ball with a metal plate on top of that. Then they carefully lined it. <laughs> then they carefully filled it with hundreds of ball bearings of various sizes. It apparently took two men to keep the metal plate pushed down while the bearings were funneled in and the dial set in place to the top. They then gingerly placed it in the mass in masses of padding and sealed it in a box addressed to one of them at the work site with all the requisite fragile this way up and handle with care stamps on it. It was taken out so that it could be mailed back to the site with instructions for the postie to be very careful with it. The day it arrived, my dad and his friends hid around the corner of the general store and waited, sneaking glimpses in through the window. The nosy general storeman apparently couldn't keep his hands off of it. They could see him examining the box from all angles, reading the label and muttering to himself, What the What the hell is a spherical spreader? He opened it up and get through this and pulled the packaging packing material aside. Peering at the dial on the top, he gave it one twist. Nothing happened. He clicked it another notch. Still nothing. He twisted all the way. The top flew off. <laughs> Propelled by the force of the spring inside, scattered hundreds of ball bearings into the air. <laughs> Apparently, he was on his hands and knees behind the counter. <laughs> desperately trying to scoop up the rolling balls and jam them back inside when the men, very innocently, came in and called out, Hi, has a package arrived today with a spherical spreader? <laughs> Needless to say, no more mail was opened after that. 
Oh my goodness me. That made me, oh my God, that has made my day. I'm actually crying. I have got actual tears of laughter pouring down my face. That really, really made me cackle. Um, what a rebellion. I just think it's brilliant. And the fact that it did actually work and he did stop opening the mail as well is even better. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. And just like Matt's dad, it doesn't have to be your rebellion. It could be a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be a child, an animal, it doesn't matter. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. No new patrons today, but an enormous thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, but rather than me tell you all about why I love them, I'm going to let Kimberly Grimes tell you all about why she uses them and why she loves them. I've had Pro Writing Aid for years now and frequently use the web editor program to check what I've written in my emails and newsletters. When checking my stories, either directly in Microsoft Word through the add-in feature, or in the web editor on the ProWritingAid website, ProWritingAid is my go-to resource for grammar and spelling checks. And as much as I love the grammar and spelling checks, that's only half of what their editing software can do. Some of my favorite tools ProWritingAid offers are the overused words, echo words, and sentence length features. I've recommended ProWritingAid to many of my author friends, as well as many of my friends and family who are not writers. Not only is this program a must-have, but it's also a sanity saver. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Crystal Craker. Crystal is the writing pirate, an indie romance author, and the partnership coordinator at ProWritingAid. She sails the seven internet seas, breaking tropes and bending genres. She has a background in anthropology and education, which brings fresh perspectives to her romance novels. When she's not daydreaming about her next book or article, you can find her cooking gourmet gluten-free cuisine, laughing at memes and playing keyboard games. Crystal lives in Dallas, Texas with her husband, child and dogs. Hello and welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. So tell me, and this is completely off topic already, but tell me about the gluten-free stuff. Is that because you're gluten-free or is it just I a- am. Yes. Yeah. I, I have celiac disease. And when I got diagnosed, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to feel limited. I'm going to teach myself everything there is to know so that I actually eat good food. I love that. I was tested for celiac, uh, just around my early twenties. I think it was towards the end of university, um, because I had some chronic issues and actually it just turns out that I'm intolerant to various forms of lactose. (laughs) So not gluten. (laughs) (laughs) Conclusion. <laughs> um, and the funny thing is, the doctors couldn't tell me that. They um, they were like, oh, you need to like, uh, you know, there wasn't really a test back then. So basically they elim- right. got me to eliminate foods out. And the minute that I stopped drinking milk, I stopped having a problem. <laughs> Oh, well, that is convenient. That's a lot easier to avoid, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like gluten is in an awful lot of things. I do think we're better now, though. There's a lot more options on the market than there were there like, 10 years ago. There are. What's your what's your favorite dish to make that's gluten free? Um 
I love making a really great bolognese. Um, oh, cool. Like a, you know, like cook it on the stovetop for six to eight hours. Just really nice bolognese sauce. I love it. My kid's favorite meal is spaghetti bolognese. Love it. <laughs> okay. Well, we are here to talk about um, editing. So uh, we're going to talk specifically first about editing for clarity. So um, before we do that, though, I would like you to talk a little bit about your journey and to tell me kind of how did you come to working with Pro Writing Aid? Like, how did you get into writing? Um, yeah, just tell me a little bit more about you and your journey. Well, I've had a bit of a wandering journey uh, to get here, actually. So I went to school for anthropology with a focus in archaeology, and I did excavations. And I've always been a writer, but that felt like such a pipe dream to me. Uh, and then I decided, because I was working in public schools, that I really enjoyed working with kids, with troubled youth. So I got my teaching certificate, and I taught for three years, and I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. So I discovered about halfway through my third year, a course uh, on how to become a freelance writer from uh, Gina Horky. And I did that and I was like, this is it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a writer professionally. So uh, after my first major article went live, I gave my resignation and said, I'm finishing out the year, but I'm not coming back next school year. And I quit uh, and it was terrifying because I did not yet have a full-time income. I was still in the pitching game and it was uh, terrifying, but exhilarating. And then I had all of this free time and I said, you know, I've had this novel just in my head waiting to come out that I think about all the time. I mean, I have several, but this one in particular. So I did National Novel Writing Month for the first time in 2016. Um, made a lot of writing mistakes with my first book, but I'm still very proud of it. And then I... In 2019, uh, Pro Writing Aid sent out a call for freelance writers, and I was accepted, and I freelanced for two years. And then in 2021, actually, right after I came back from maternity leave, uh, I was offered a full-time staff writer position, which was uh, thrilling because now I didn't have to constantly find clients. Like, this was, this was going to be great. And... I very quickly uh, moved into a content manager position. And then as we've been kind of revamping and everything at providing aid, uh, I was offered this partnerships coordinator position, which is so exciting because I get to work with so many great people I get to work with, you know, Grant Faulkner of National Novel Writing Month. I get to work with all of the great writing technology, people like you, Sasha. So it's been really, really fun to take on this new role. I love that. I find it, I, this is one of my favorite questions, mostly because I'm just really nosy and I love like hearing about people's journeys and <laughs> like how, like and all the serendipitous things that happen along the way. And like, you know, I don't really like to think believe in fate because I like to control my life but um you know sometimes I do think these things are put in our path like for 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 good reason um yes. okay yes. 
So let's move on to editing then. Um, let's talk about what editing for clarity means. And like, why do you feel that we need to do that? Like at what point in our, in our like journey to publication, should we be editing for clarity? Talk me through the concept. Um, yeah, just, just talk me through editing for clarity. So clarity is how easy your writing is for people to understand. And this is definitely something that you should really be looking at in your line editing stage. And hopefully you have a great editor that can help you where you struggle. But uh, in your first drafts, you're not too concerned about that. You're focused on getting the story down, making it engaging, um, making that makes sense. But when you start going into your line editing and going sentence by sentence, you really want to make sure that you are explaining what you need to get across, the point you need to get across, the emotions that you want to get across with as much clarity as possible. And that means writing simply, but not in a juvenile way. I think a lot of people hear clarity and readability and immediately think that that means they need to dumb down their writing. Mm. And it doesn't mean that at all. It really means that you want people to not struggle to understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, I. it's interesting because there are some literary works, like when you look at literary fiction, that are so impressively thematic and symbolic and kind of teach us something but because they're so inaccessible because of the language there's a huge great swathe of readers that miss them and that's not to say that um readers are dumb or anything like that it's just that when you make the language more complex it is more it requires more energy and more brain space to engage with it and because so many, like when you look at the general population of readers or when you look at um, like readers as a whole, the vast majority of readers are reading for escapism. They're reading for, you know, those like, yeah, those Friday nights when it's been a hard week and you just want escapism. But I kind of, yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, like there's a huge portion of readers who love literary fiction um, and love that complexity. And I know certainly there are times when I just read like, you know, a, a, a cheap, cheap novel for want of a better word. And then there are times mm -hmm. when I want to read expensive language, if that makes sense. You know, like there's the, yes. the, there are times and places for each of those. And I think that, you know, well, that's why we have genre, isn't it? Because all, all of them are important and we need all of them. But yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like we miss the mark. We could access more readers if we just made, just made the, the language clearer, I think. I don't know what you think about that. I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that um, as like you said, people are reading for escapism, they're reading for entertainment, or maybe they're reading for education, and they don't want to have to work any harder mm. than they have to, um, to get the point, because, you know, our time is so precious. But I also don't think that you necessarily need to only use simple words, only use simple sentence structures uh, to be clear. I think you need to be deliberate about yes. where you use your flowery words. Is it adding to your point or is it taking away from your point? And I think that's something that you have to ask yourself and be very ruthless in your editing. I think this 
your darlings moment. You may have the most beautiful line of prose, but is it actually helping your reader to experience the story or is it taking away from it? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Terry Pratchett's a really good example of that. We're always told not to use adverbs. Stephen King says don't use adverbs. And Terry Pratchett puts like two fingers up to that, you know, because it creates that sort of stuffy academic uh, voice in, of for a character. And, and also Terry Pratchett uses it for humor. Um, and so I think yes. that's one of the times like you're like basically to capture what you're saying about it being deliberate, like Terry Pratchett can do that because he's doing it deliberately and that's why it works. Um, yeah. So yeah, I love that so much. Okay. What are some of the common mistakes or challenges writers face when it comes to like creating clarity in their work and how can they address them during the editing process? So authors have a tendency uh, in early drafts um, pa to use passive language. So including passive voice, hidden verbs, things like that. So passive voice, of course, is where you take the subject of your sentence and turn it into the object. And this is a writing tip that we hear a lot. But because we often think that way as we're writing, it comes out that way. So passive voice um, editing to make sure that you're using active voice as much as possible is going to clear your writing up really quickly. If you just go through and uh, eliminate all of your passive voice, your writing is instantly going to become much clearer. Uh, hidden verbs are things like, uh, uh, you know, he, he gave, um, I'm terrible at coming up with on the fly examples, but um, uh, he gave a wink, right? That's you're hiding that verb as a noun instead of saying he winked. You're adding these unnecessary words in there that are just bogging down your writing. So wherever you can, be really, really active. I think adverbs is another great example because uh, when you're looking for specificity, which is such a key in clarity, then you need to use the verb rather than using a basic verb and an adverb. So he walked away sadly can look like so many things and we can't see that in your writing. You've added extra words and you aren't describing anything. What is he, did, did he slump his shoulders and shuffle away? Did he stomp away? What did he do to walk away sadly? We need to see that. So finding the specificity in your writing and your power verbs uh, replacing all of your adverbs with power verbs is so crucial to both making your writing more engaging and increasing your clarity. I love that. My, I remember, this is one of the things that I remember from my childhood when I was at school and like that favorite English teacher that we all have. Um, mm -hmm. And he always used to call them like Premier League words. Uh, oh. And yeah, you can tell which teacher was the football fan. You can tell. <laughs> it's a football fan, right? But yeah, I love that. Like when you say like power verbs and stuff, I think that is um, so, so true. Uh, filtering is another example. Like uh, when the character, instead of uh, the, and I talk about this all the time, this is in the anatomy of prose. I talk about this as well. But when you as the, as the author insert words that remove the reader from like essentially behind the character's eyes. So instead of saying like he hurt, uh, instead of saying, no, so you would be writing, he heard an owl hoot instead of just saying 
the owl hooted, right? It's that owl same, hooted. it's exactly. that same concept, but it's normally about the senses. So, like, she felt, uh, he saw, uh, she heard, you know, whatever that things like that. So, yeah, I think that's a those are great examples that you um, that you used. I think that uh, one of the things that can really help is. Uh, now, I don't think that all writers need to be grammar experts to be good writers. I don't think that at all. We have so many apps out there that can fix your grammar. Uh, obviously, I work for one, but uh, you don't have to be a grammar expert. But some basic understanding of sentence structure can really help you there with distancing language and passive voice. And one of those things are understanding like action uh, words versus glue words, these words that important points of your sentences together and the more glue words you, that you're using these words like heard or to or through um all of your articles some of them are essential but many times you can restructure a sentence to get rid of these so that the important sentence are standing out yeah that that <laughs> the glue words are often I actually do quite well on pro-writing aid. I think pro-writing aid's trained me over all of these years, but uh, the one that I do tend to still struggle with are the glue words. And uh, occasionally, whenever I get a chapter and it's like the glue ind index is fine, I'm like, yeah! <laughs> I love that sticky <laughs> report because it's so enlightening uh, and occasionally a blow to your self-esteem, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you work through it and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. This is, this is great, but it's such a great, such a great report. Yeah. A hundred percent. Oh, there was something else I was going to say and it's like slipped out of my brain. That was something in response to something okay. that you said, but I can't remember it's, it's gone. Unfortunately, I think that's like the mum brain that never leaves. <laughs> never, <laughs> never off. <laughs> um okay so do you want to give me a couple a couple of tips like craft writing tips to help writers write more clearly or a couple more tips I should say to, to help writers uh, with clarity yeah so I really want to hammer home the importance of uh using um the um, and how to find those. Um, and uh, I mean, of course, a thesaurus is a great example, uh, is a great tool that you can use. Um, but one of my favorite resources for finding the best possible verb I can use is the emotion thesaurus and actually all of the thesauruses by Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi, uh, because I can go in there and it will give me um, the the whole phrase with a great power verb for what I'm trying to say. I can look at what it means to be sad and it's going to give me the actions. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm editing, I feel like my brain just disappears completely and I can't think of any synonyms for the word walked. Like, what does that possibly mean? Uh, <laughs> because editing, uh, I think we hyper-focus so much on words that we just kind of miss some of these easy things. So one of my go-tos is uh, definitely using the thesaurus, a regular thesaurus or um, like the word explorer on pro writing aid or the emotion thesaurus by, um, by Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi. Um, so um, that helps me with finding the specific verbs that I need. Another uh, tip for clarity is going to be targeting your readability. Uh, and that's something that you really need to look at your genre conventions for. Um, 
if that's easy if you're writing for kids, right? If you need um, a middle grade, you can target that actual level. But if you're writing a romance novel and it's coming out at level, that's not going to be enjoyable for most romance readers. It's going to be a slog. Uh, so things that help readability are um, shorter sentences, um, less flowery words, things like that. And again, you can use those. Uh, you can use long sentences. You can use these beautiful, fancy words, uh, but use them deliberately and edit ruthlessly uh, to get those. So targeting your readability to make sure that you're hitting, um, if you use the Flesh Kincaid scale, which is based on the American public school system, most can read comfortably without having to work at it at around the eighth grade level. So grade eight, which is uh, also around an 80% on the uh, on the other flesh scale. So just, targeting just, your readability. Sorry, just for the um, non-US grade system people, oh, what yes. age is grade eight? Because that, that, year That's eight about in, in England is 13 years old. So. It's the same. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. About 13, 13 to 14 is about the, the age range. If you, assuming you've been in school that whole time. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, I remembered what I was going to say, and it was about um, how like really active descriptions are some of my favorite, like where, you know, I like where you're personifying something or, you know, and, and therefore you give like the non descript thing like agency um and it just goes back to what you were saying about active verbs and you know power words and things like that so yeah that that was the only thing that I was going to say earlier oh um, I love that yeah I love using that as a tool in my writing yeah it's fun me, yeah me too me too like that, those are the lines that I tend to underline loads in, in books whenever I <laughs> uh whenever I'm reading and deconstructing um okay let's let's talk about like self-editing like obviously you need to kind of be aware a little bit and like you need to be able to know what you're looking for looking for um so how can we develop our self-editing skills I suppose like and we're going to talk about sensory detail in a bit as well but like how do we develop our editing skills in general but also for editing for clarity and sensory detail so that's a really, that's a really interesting question. And I think it's something that, first of all, the more you edit, the more books you've written, uh, the easier it gets. Because what happens naturally is you start to develop a system. So I think if you're really struggling with editing, you need to find some sort of system to help you approach your writing. And I think that there's some great editing checklists out there that you can and uh, I teach a um, like a nine, well, a three step with three. Um, each part has three things um, approach to really clean up your writing when you're line editing. Um, and I think that you have to find a system that works you because if you try to look at all of these things all at once especially as an inexperienced writer or as, as a new writer you're going to get overwhelmed and you don't know what to cut what to change and what to leave yeah I completely agree when I now <laughs> you know almost 
I don't know, over 20 books in, I do do it all at, all at once, which is a bit kind of masochistic, really. <laughs> but um, certainly when I first started, I couldn't do that. Like I had to develop that skill because you almost don't know what you don't know. Um, and so I would go through and like edit one thing or like I'd be editing for structure, I'd be editing for pace or or character or whatever. Um but I so, so, so agree about finding what works for you. Now, I don't much enjoy rereading. Um, and so I try to do as comprehensive of an edit as I possibly can. So, for example, this last book, um, I did my own developmental edits in Pro Writing Aid. So I did it at the same time as editing the lines which is like <laughs> nobody tells you to do that like everybody no. tells you not to do that but it worked <laughs> and I tell you what I really enjoyed I enjoyed the process much more because I could see it being cleaned up quicker um and, but that's because I have a lot of like strengths everybody drink um that require pace and that like pace and like that gave me pennies to see like a very rapid, intense improvement. Like I don't take pleasure particularly in in editing. So for me, like the quicker I can get it done, the better. But I couldn't have done that five, six, seven years ago. Like it is only because I know what I'm doing now. Um. So yeah, I think, and hey, pro writing aid still teaches me shit every day. So. Yeah, well, I love to hear that. It definitely teaches me a lot still. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I even edit on the side professionally and uh, I, I still am constantly learning ways to improve from pro writing aid. I think every book we read does that, right? Like, because there's mm -hmm. something to take from every single book, every single manuscript. Like, I really feel like editing is a reciprocal process. I just had an interesting experience with an editor where we disagreed on something. And in the end... Um, in the final draft, the editor suggested that we do something that I had done in the original draft. And I was like, you realize that that's what I was trying to do. Um, and so like, I think we both learned from each other because the editor made me better, made what I was trying to do in that original draft better. But also I helped the editor to see kind of like what, what was happening, like what was happening. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, it's a reciprocal process. And I think editing is like, I think the editor learns as much as the editee, if that, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like I get, get oh, loads yeah. from, yeah. yeah. I say that, I say that about critique groups too, because I, I say that if you're part of a good critique group, uh, you learn just as much a listening to other people critique other people's writing and you giving critiques of other people's writing just as much as you learn from having your own writing critiqued because everybody has a slightly different perspective. I think I've learned more from my critique partners than any other resource out there. Mm -hmm. Just you know, showing up and putting the work in uh, and really listening. Yeah, totally. Because we get to learn what things are like stylistic. Um, so, for example, um, I, um, I, I'm trying to think about how to word this differently. I think I'm not going to talk about that. Right. Um, yes, I completely agree. And and I learn something every time I write a book, like every time I get feedback on a book, every time, you know, we we also learn what is our personal preference and what is author voice, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so like, 
but but that also requires a bit of confidence, I think, in our in our own ability. So, like, um, for example, uh, and hopefully, uh, like, I know that my beta reader listens to this, so this is this. Hopefully, they don't mind me saying this, but they made a suggestion about removing a scene that I'd written um, that I wrote, and I cried laughing writing it. So I kept it, but but that's because it was part of my voice, um, and I took their point and tried to make it more like in line with what they were saying, make it more relevant to that, to, to that bit mm-hmm. of the plot. But I didn't remove it because that felt like an integral part of my voice. And I'm sure there's things that have gone the other way that they've ignored or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But then the other bit that I learned so much from my my beta is, is how to be a better world builder. And that's why I'm now, because of that, I've learned this from them and I'm trying to be better in this new series. So I just think it's so powerful getting feedback and being open to it and knowing and knowing when knowing that we don't have to say yes to everything that our editors or that our beta readers say. Like we have the power to say, no, actually this bit's important to me. But also sometimes you've got to kill your darlings, which is why, you know, I caved and cut like 10,000 words out of my manuscript. So it's just, you know, knowing which darlings to kill and which ones that are important enough to you that you keep. Uh, So, yes. But that's like... You are ultimately in control of of your novel. It is your baby, but sometimes, you know, a little pruning needs to happen. I think we forget that though sometimes. So you think not not the pruning bit, but I think when we give our novel to somebody else, we almost lose the um, authority over it. And sometimes we cede control to those who have read it and given us feedback. And I think that's why sometimes people break and they stop writing or, you know, sometimes they change things and it doesn't land so well. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me and my... Lack of no, I, I think you're right. I think as as authors, uh, we're we're so eager to please. We want yeah. people to love our story. We want people to think our story is the best thing they've ever read. And so we can lose sight of the fact that ultimately this is our story. This is our baby that we have nurtured and we are in control. But it is really easy to forget that because, you know, writers are people pleasers and you want people to love your book. That's why editors are so powerful and they, you know, they've they've got a duty to give the good feedback as well as the the constructive criticism. Anyway, I will move on because now I'm just waxing lyrical. Um, (laughs) Okay, let's talk about sensory details, uh, because this is one of my favorite bits of writing. Um, when When do we need to use sensory details? Like, are there particular moments in a book? Are there particular like plot points or scene types that we need to use it in? What can you tell me um, about sensory writing? So I think every scene needs a level of sensory detail because sensory detail is what brings your story to life and jumps off the page for your reader. And if you aren't paying special attention to uh, engaging your reader's senses, then your scene is going to fall flat. It's going to read very um, info dumpy and which is not a word, but it is now and uh, kind of dry because there's nothing engaging your readers. So sensory detail belongs in every scene. That does not mean that it belongs in every single paragraph and that you need to go overboard with describing the senses constantly throughout your scene. It just means you need to pull your reader in so that they are 
in your story experiencing it. Yeah, I love that. And like, it really does do what you're saying, which is like, make it visceral and drag you in it. It takes what it takes the sort of ink and pen on the page and makes it 3D. Like that's the way that I always describe it. It kind of Mm -hmm. makes the story 3D for me. Um, especially as somebody like, and this is a crazy thing, right? Most of story is visual. So like we're reading, well, for me it is, I know some people have that thing where they don't think in pictures, which just blows my mind. Cause I mm-hmm. f- find that fascinating, but yeah, for, for me, most of story is seeing, but when I read and writers have added in those, that texturization for, for the other senses, that's when it becomes alive almost, um, Okay, that's also interesting about like I hadn't really thought about the fact that you need it in every scene. You do it, you do I agree with that. I think there are like certain scenes like where things are emotional that I think it becomes even more important. Yes. And that's where you need to ramp it up. It's interesting that you said 3D because I when I teach about sensory detail, I I 3D method. And for me, that means every scene, no matter whether it's a transition scene uh, that you need to um, just, you know, connect some important plot points, or uh, it's a super emotional scene that's so important, you need at least three senses to really make it come alive. So that's why I call it 3D. Um, So three of the five senses, six, if you count internal sensations, I kind of count that differently among sensory details, um, but it is a feeling emotion. Uh, So you need at at least three, in my personal humble opinion, uh, to really make a scene uh, engage your reader. Yeah, no, I I, I think so too. So how do we, how do we know when to do that? Like, let's say a character, um, you know, is in a park or whatever, or or I don't know, in a shopping center or literally make it up. (laughs) um how do we know when the right moment in that scene is to do it when do do we is it just all up front is it in the beginning the middle in the end of the scene like where are the points that we that we should be doing this and using sensory details I think at the beginning of a scene uh, to since at least is really important to pull your writer into that scene like scenes are mini stories right they have an arc um and so if you wait halfway through your scene uh to put in any sensory details then your characters are just floating heads for your readers uh so as your character is experiencing it and you don't need to put in every single thing that your character is seeing and hearing and smelling in a supermarket uh but you need to say hey my character is experiencing this that means my reader needs to experience this uh so uh and use um unexpected ones to make it more exciting so um rather than talking about seeing the colorful aisles full of products at the supermarket talk about the squeak of the shopping cart or trolley um wheels on the floor that is grating on your character's nerves or the waft of the bloody fish counter that i can't stand oh, yes <laughs> makes me gag every time i go past it <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry to everybody who loves fish i can't i actually can't i can't i cannot with it <laughs> i can't either it's disgusting oh, i don't um, get it <laughs> my kid as well he adores fish it's like i i'm like what have i done to deserve a child who loves fish so much <laughs> oh dear yeah i think that is a that's a great um 
a great way that the words that really hit home were if your character is experiencing it your reader should be too um and that means making it 3d and that that's kind of like the little snippet that i think i'm gonna bury somewhere in my brain so i don't forget <laughs> tattoo it on my on my memory um okay so what are some of your top craft tips for utilizing like sensory detail to greater effect in your writing how can we level up we know that we need to use them how do we level up our sensory writing I think that this goes actually back talking about with clarity and it's using the right verbs. Uh, so, and using unexpected verbs. Uh, so um, what, um, when you're looking at sound is one of my favorites to write, you know, um, uh, and I was writing a scene uh, where there were heavy chains that were um, scraping along the floor. Um, use these uh, unexpected, I wanted to, until my critique partners were like, would they really groan or they're metal? They would scrape. And I was like, no, I loved groans. It was so unexpected. Um, but if you're using verbs, so wherever you find um, your senses, um, find a really, really great verb. And this is one of those things that when I edit takes the most time is finding that the best possible word that I can use uh, to enhance my, my sensory detail. I really, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about providing aid here, but I love our sensory verb because it's going to identify which senses I've already just, used. But what sorry, it also does... You broke up just as you were saying about oh, what so the sorry. writing aid thing was. Can you just... Can you just... Yeah. Because I didn't hear quite what the thing was. Yeah, the pro writing aid sensory report is uh, so crucial in my writing process, my editing process, um, because it points out which senses I've already used. Um, but it also, when I look at those and I see, oh, I have used um, only visual and I have not done anything related to touch or scent, uh, I could add that. But it's also pointing out um, the basic you know, words that I've used to use those senses. And so I can say, ooh, I can make this stronger. So I don't have to find it myself. Um, and a lot of times the sensory report is actually pointing out your distancing language that you mentioned earlier. And I think that's another really big skill to level up your sensory writing is every time you have the word saw, felt, heard, just get rid of it. Just get rid of it and reform the sentence because that is taking you a step away from your reader. Um, so to save time and make sure that I'm not missing any, um, I use the sensory report uh, as one of the first things I do when I edit. Do you, I, I, I don't know if I've asked you this already, maybe, maybe I have, but do you, and, and I, I think you've talked a little bit about subverting expectations, but like, do you have particular times where you use certain senses? Like I know in romance, for example, obviously touch is like the most important sense because I mean, romance is so touch heavy. I mean, like you can't bang without touching each other, can you? Sure, <laughs> let's no. <just> virtual reality. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, do you? <laughs> uh, oh, just trust me to bring the tone down. Um, do you have any? Yeah, do you have any like work, like advice on picking what sense to use when? So in psychology smell and taste are some of the most powerful, but they're also underrated emotions, or, I mean, senses. And so when I'm writing something really emotional, 
I want to throw in smell and taste. Okay. I want to taste the tears. I want to smell, you know, something in the air because that just instantly makes it more powerful because um, it's so related to our memory and our emotions and the feelings that we have. Uh, so when I'm writing something really emotional, I want to use those unexpected senses more. Yeah, I love that. There are certain smells that can evoke a particular memory for me. Um, and it, yeah, it's, I, it's funny enough, I studied psychology. So all of this rings lots of true bells for me because uh, it's all about the neural pathways and basically the, 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 the pathways cross with where we store memory. There's the, the nose and center olfactory or whatever they are bulbs in the, in the brain that are receiving the smell signals cross over with where we store memory, which is why that happens, which I just think is so magical that we can smell something and be thrown back to a memory that's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, full of happiness or, 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 you know, in those unfortunate times, full of sadness or, or whatever. Um, but that is so powerful for you as a writer to be able to do that to a reader. So, yeah, I love it. Okay, do you see I any... Think, yeah, awesome. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that also gives you an interesting opportunity for character building. If you can draw on those scents that evoke an emotion in your character, mm -hmm. then you get a little bit more of your character backstory. You know, if it reminds your character of grandma's, uh, you know, roast dinners, um, then you get this nostalgia element to your character. And suddenly, not only is your scene more three-dimensional, your character is more three-dimensional. Yeah, I completely agree with that 100%. Um, do you see any mistakes? Like you mentioned that you do editing on the side. Like what are the most common mistakes you see writers making with sensory details? Distancing language, just okay. so much distancing language. And, you know, this is still one of those things that, um, uh, you know, I, in my early drafts, I struggle with distancing language a lot too. Um, I think that we're in narrator mode when we're writing, uh, and it, it's, um, and we're just trying to get the words on the page. So I think uh, you have to be really conscientious of uh, what distancing language that you're using and making sure that you're pulling reader in as much as possible. I love that. I think writers also into a laundry list um, mindset with sensory detail, where all of a sudden you've got an opening paragraph and it's like you just list you know, three or four senses back and forth. Sorry, I'm tapping. That doesn't do anything off camera. Um, I, so I think that if you are falling into this, like, oh, I've got to include all of these senses and you throw them in um, and it feels too deliberate and less natural rather than spacing them out, finding where they fit. And that's something you just get better with uh, practice. And but I think that's also a mistake. It's like, oh, I need sensory detail. Let me just boom, 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 throw it in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are many things that we get better at. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, how can we use sensory details to create mood and atmosphere? Oh, that's a good one. So I think that... I think it's less the sense that you use and more how you're describing that sense uh, or that sense, not sense, um, maybe scent. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, 
need to pay really close attention to the connotation of the words that you're using. Uh, so what the, the feeling that those evokes, and this just comes back to diction, to word choice, and really making sure that, um, you know, if you're trying to write a, a really heavy, dark scene, you don't want to use words like squeaked. Um, that's not exactly a really um, heavy word. Um, you don't want to uh, use uh, aroma in um, when something smells bad. Uh, you need to really pay attention to the feel of each word. And if you don't know what uh, feeling a word has, that means it's probably not the right word. And you can probably find a synonym that matches your mood um, better. So I think really diving into other synonyms, um, trying to find maybe a great metaphor or something that um, matches what you're trying to get across. Yeah, yeah, I I completely um, agree. I also can't believe that we have come to the end of our oh, wow. um, I know questions. It went super fast, but that's what happens when it's a good conversation. Before I ask you the ultimate podcast question, would you would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about Pro Writing Aid? Um, I obviously rave about Pro Writing Aid. I, as I said in this episode, I, I use it when I edit. Um, I use it in my last edit, but um you know, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about Pro Writing Aid and why they should um, check it out? So Pro Writing Aid is your always on, always helpful and never annoying um, writing assistant. And we are there to help you um, really tell your story and use your words in the most powerful way possible. Uh, everybody has a story to tell and we value that. We value the culture of storytelling in our company and that comes across in our tool. So what you'll find with Pro Writing Aid are so many editing reports that you just can't find anywhere else. Like I mentioned, we have a sensory detail one. We have one um, on blue words. We have a style one that is gonna not just find your passive voice help you with the overall wording. It's going to find hidden verbs for you. We have dozens of reports and uh, you can even select uh, your genre type so that you're writing appropriately. Premium users can compare to one of dozens of authors to see how you stack up to an author in your genre. It's I just didn't know that. Really... How you did didn't you know that? know that? No. Oh, yeah. That says the number yeah. one competition. <laughs> <laughs> so you go if you go into your settings there's a place to select an author and you go through and I mean just tons of best-selling authors and then when you run your summary report which is the one that gives you uh, graphic representations it's going to compare elements of your writing to the within uh, the, to this author that you've selected so and I have mine uh, when I write fantasy I usually set it to Sarah J Moss uh, but you know you can do Stephen King you can do you can do whatever uh, can you do this on the Mac app or do you have to be in the in the on the web-based one Oh, you know what? I am not a Mac user, but uh, wherever you can access your settings uh, it you should be able to set it. So I am going to keep you on the line after I finish yes. recording this. <laughs> uh, to double check if I can do it. Okay, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. 
I am a word count rebel. Uh, I really struggled with my first three books, uh, which is our fantasy trilogy, uh, fantasy romance trilogy. Um, I tried my very best to get it into the hundred thousand range. And I just, everything I added, people were like, this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. And everyone, all of my feedback, all of my reviews just say that the pacing is great. Um, they loved it. Uh, couldn't wait for more. But no one has ever complained that I wrote 65,000 word fantasy novels. Um, but then now I'm writing a, <laughs> I'll be publishing later this year, a historical romance, uh, which should be in the 80 to 90,000 range. And it's in, you know, a hundred thousand um, so, um but you know what i'm an i'm an indie author and i really think that while there are genre conventions and those can be very important um people if if your story is solid people are gonna love it you're gonna find people who love your work i totally totally agree for example paranormal romance the average is like uh 300 to 350 pages and then you've got people like carissa broadbent who is writing like 600 page times and getting to number mm -hmm. one in the store so that you know exactly. we, i love these rebellions well thank you so much for your time today would you like to tell everyone a little bit about where they can find out more about you where they can find out more about pro writing aid um your books anything else that you'd like to add uh, yeah, so you can uh, find me. I'm most active on Instagram at Crystal N. Craker Author. Um, and um, you can find Pro Writing Aid uh, on, across social media. Just search our name. Um, and uh, you can also go to ProWritingAid.com to uh, find out how to sign up for our tool. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Crystal Ann Craker, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Orna Ross, and we're going to be talking all about creative self-publishing and planning for 2024. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.